Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We're going to start off the show today talking about stock that's been in the news lately by the name... Well. The company is called MoviePass, but the stock is Helios and Matheson Analytics, which it really sounds, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, that sounds uh, like a biotech company or something. This is one of those companies that is, if we're in the midst of a bubble, which everyone seems to believe we are, at least if you follow Twitter as quote unquote everyone, this is this stock is definitely going to make one of the stories in the Michael Lewis book. It, it Count, wait, hold it on. Uh, yeah, no, agree. But counterpoint at its high, its market cap is only three hundred thirty million dollars. Okay, but this just seems like anecdotally one of those companies that people point to, like Pets dot com. So the idea here was Movie Pass, and, and it seems like the kind of idea that got shot down by everyone on the internet right when it happened. But they their idea was nine ninety five a month, and you can see as many movies as you want at the movie theater, which. How much does it cost for a movie in New York now? There's no way that movies are even that cheap for one in New York. I think right? a movie is like fifteen bucks. Why wouldn't they charge like twenty nine ninety five to start off? Because it sounds like they lost money immediately when this started. Well, there was an article over the weekend, and there's been many, but one one good one that describes what's going on here from the Washington Post. And a quote from the article is in early interviews, MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe insisted his company would be profitable, despite all logic. <laughs> It really does defy like I I understand like network effects is the big buzzword in Silicon Valley and tech companies these days, and they probably wanted to just get as many people as they could signed up and then maybe increase the the prices. But but so the idea for this one is they were going to charge whatever it was fourteen ninety five a month and allow you to see movies, but they were going to pay for each movie that you saw. So it's sort of like the gym model where they would hope that people sign up and just don't use it. But if you see five movies in a month and it costs MoviePass $75 and they're only taking 15, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this has some troubling business models. So we looked at the stock a little bit. It got up to $300 million in market cap. Is that the high-ish? Yep. And now it's at 150, which is kind of funny to look at. No, no, 150,000. On... Yes, right. Sorry, 150,000. We looked it up on Yahoo Finance and I kind of had to do a double take. I don't think I've ever seen a stock listed with that small of a market cap before. It's trading for $0.09. Cents. This is sort of wild. So the stock is trading for $0.09 cents today. There have been 240 million shares bought and sold. So the volume is $240 million, which means that around $20 million in, sh- in stock has been traded today. Again, the stock is only worth $150,000. There's your price discovery, right? Yeah. yeah. The next one's going to help you. My favorite part about the Washington Post article was... The, the founder guy said, it may seem like it's too good to be true, but that's what they said about us at Netflix. <laughs> like, pick any successful tech company and compare yourself to them, and you can make it sound like your, your dream is going to come true. So they just made an announcement today that they're going to be limiting customers to three movies a month. It used to be that you could watch one a day. And they did a press release last week. And these are two quotes that I pulled out. 
One, exhibitors know that without MoviePass, they will be able to continue to charge exorbitant prices for theater tickets and gouge customers with overpriced concessions. This is exactly the attitude the taxicab industry took when Uber entered the market, which is a bit hubristic comparing what they're doing to Uber. And then the other one is... Any crowing about the uptick in box office receipts the summer season should include the fact that a significant percentage of their total is directly attributable to MoviePass subscribers. I think my favorite part of the story is you told me that they did a 250 to 1 reverse stock split in July, and I thought you were kidding, but they seriously did a 250 to 1 reverse stock split, and the stock is still only worth $0.08 a share. So the people who, the people, how many people are trading this today? There's 250 million shares being traded or something. I mean, the bid-ask spread alone would eat up your entire your entire trade, would it not? I can't. This this story is... Obviously, this is just a drop in the bucket in terms of the stock market, but this is, uh, this is quite a story. Yeah. So I do think that this is probably an idea that's going to stick. Maybe they're not going to be the ones that, that are doing right, yeah, it, but this right, is a good there idea. Will be a, yeah, a Netflix for movie theaters, it would seem to make sense. But yeah, this was not the, the way to do it, I think. Yeah. So sticking with uh, media, there's an article in the New York Times today about Disney's upcoming venture into into streaming. And you have little kids that are probably big Disney fans. What do you, I will what do pay you... anything they charge for this. Okay. Any, like stuff on demand for little kids. Like the Disney movies, my kids are basically transfixed whenever we put them on. They couldn't charge a high enough price for this thing for me. Okay. I think this thing is going to be a massive success. I'll put it out there now. Like, hmm. Okay. For families, I mean, if they have the whole Disney catalog on here, it's, I mean, you ha- and you have little kids, you have to, you will have to buy this. Yeah, that makes sense. So there was an interesting stat in the article. Adults who have canceled cable or satellite hookups and continue without it will hit 33 million this year, a 33% increase from 2017. That's pretty wild. How close are you or will you ever come close to getting rid of it? So I would be one of these cord cutters if my wife would let me. My problem is I, I, I have a hard time remembering all the passwords. So I'm just going to keep for efficiency's sake. Well, the other thing that would be tough actually, another thing about is, is watching sports would be... Yeah, so you couldn't do it. So that's if, if ESPN has to come out with their own streaming or, or something similar to get them all. I agree. I wouldn't be able to... Yeah, but, but is there, there's not going to be a complete unbundling because then I would need to sign up for TNT... And right. I'm I will be the last man on earth to cut the cord. I will never I love cable, so I'm anti cord cutters. That's just me. I'll stand by that one. Okay. All right, well, so last week we talked about the race to zero in fund fees and five days later or so, Fidelity announced that they were cut they were offering two mutual funds with zero percent expense ratios. So what was your initial thought? Big deal or or not so big a deal? I look, I wrote about this on Friday and I wrote that in the grand scheme of things, not a huge deal because if you're going from paying three basis points at Charles Schwab to paying nothing at Fidelity, that's that really doesn't really matter. But I think in the grand scheme of things, I, I pointed out the fact that the original index fund had an 8.5% sales load charge to buy it in the mid-70s. And when you look at it in those terms, the fact that this stuff is so cheap now for people, I think it's... Uh, it's hard to say it's a watershed moment, but I think it's it's going to continue to put pressure on other people. And I think that the biggest thing, people were looking at it from the standpoint of Fidelity. The Eric Beltunas from Bloomberg had some great stats. The fact that he said Fidelity makes $18 billion a year, which is double or more than double the entire ETF industry. 
and four times as big as Vanguard. So Fidelity has enough money to you know, use this kind of loss leader status to bring people in. By the way, that's revenue, not income. Oh, what did I say? You said makes. Oh, yeah. Makes and revenue. Isn't no, that no, the no, same no. thing? Nope. Not the same thing. By the way, MoviePass just announced that they're going to buy back a large amount. <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry, I was, oh. I was cracking myself up. Okay. The buyback thing? Okay. Yeah. MoviePass is being manipulated higher yeah. by three... Sh- yeah. But so this chart from Eric, which we will link to in the show notes, shows that Fidelity's revenue at $18 billion is more than double the entire ETF industry and I guess almost quadruple what Vanguard's revenue is, which is pretty wild. So I think somebody sent us that these two funds will save shareholders about $47 million in, 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 uh, in fees, which is great, but it is truly a drop in the bucket for them. So I thought that this was a brilliant move by Fidelity. And I agree with you in the sense that it, it doesn't affect the individual investor that much because the difference between three and zero is, is effectively zero. Right. But I do wonder what the conversations were like at BlackRock and at Vanguard after seeing this news. Yes. I mean, I think there for sure will be funds that will say, we'll pay you five basis points to be here and we'll give you all the securities lending revenue. I That would not shock me at all. And th- I mean, the thing with Fidelity, they kind of missed the boat initially on index funds and ETFs. So I think they have nothing to lose here in, in terms of trying to gain market share. And like, I mean, if you're a 401k provider and Fidelity has a huge 401k market, why wouldn't you want to use the the fee, you know as a sort of a you know attention grabber? We're, we you know we have two funds in our four hundred one k plan that don't charge you anything. That's a that's could be a really big selling point. According to Jeffrey Patak, the Contra fund alone at Fidelity does like six hundred eighty million dollars in revenue. So Fidelity is not hurting; they can afford to do this. And I guess the idea being that once you get on the platform, they will make money off you in 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 other ways. Exactly. You just wonder. How many of those active funds that they have that are charging 60, 80, 100 basis points, if the money ever migrates from there to the index funds, that's when they start seeing some some problems. But if it's just going from low fee to low fee, someone asked us, someone emailed us and said, hey, I pay nine basis points for SPY ETF. Whatever makes sense for me to change to this, what's the break even? And with that few basis points, I mean, it's not even worth it to do the math on that because you could lose that in the tracking error between the two indexes. So I mean, like I between, think when you get, or, or what about between the time you buy it, between the time you sell one and buy another? Right. Yeah. You could, yeah, it could, could all be eaten up by just poor timing. So I think trying to switch from that low fee to low fee is, doesn't make a ton of sense. And by the way, speaking is, of something that we heard from, from a reader or a listener, somebody also emailed us and said that, suggested that Vanguard was a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> yes. Which was the hottest take of the year. Uh, yeah. Stay away. If, if, uh, I don't know. Van- <laughs> If Vanguard's a, I don't know, I don't even, I can't even give a comment on that one. You know what? Hold on, let's just let's just stick with ridiculousness for a second. So, a few days ago, you tweeted you would have been laughed out of any room in the country if you predicted in 2008 that we now have nine years of row of stock market gains, sub four percent unemployment, low inflation for years, and one of the largest econ expansions in history. And somebody actually, you and according to you, this was a frequent common response. Somebody said. And you would be laughed out of any intelligent investing conversation today if you believe unemployment is 4%. Inflation is low, parentheses, fake numbers, healthcare, and the stock market is not a huge free money bubble. Your tweet is the bell ringing at the top exclamation mark. I bet I got easily 100 replies to this tweet saying, Fed manipulation, QE, (laughs) negative interest rates. Just wait till we see the other side. 
there really are a lot of people out there who have no faith in the system anymore and believe it's all rigged against them. Well, if, the funny, you, the f- if you've been in cash <laughs> since 2007, <laughs> you probably think it's rigged against you too. The funny thing to me is the people who have been sitting in cash since 2008 are the ones who look back and say, oh, it was obvious the Fed was going to manipulate the market higher and things would go well for 10 years in a row. And they they didn't they didn't invest. If they if you know the Fed's going to quote unquote manipulate the market higher, then why wouldn't you be in the market? It's, it's so bad. Obviously, these people are just mad that they didn't make any money, and I'm sure they'll be waiting to pick up bargains when the market falls ninety five percent. Uh, yeah. All right. So where were we? So there was a good article in Quartz this week, and it said it was from Alshon Schrager, who I believe you had on your YouTube channel before. And it was titled, How Screwed Are You When It's Time to Retire? And she kind of did some myth-busting on retirement savings and retirement accounts. And this was a really good one, I thought. And she says, It's tempting to idealize the past, whether it's lost manufacturing jobs or supposed norms of civility, but the past is rarely as good as you remember. Defined benefit plans only covered at their peak 45% of workers in the US. Today, more than 60% of workers have some form of workplace retirement plan. So I think there's a lot of people out there who believe in the past, 50s, 60s, and 70s, Everyone had a pension and retirement was taken care of you, taken care of for you by your employer, but the stats don't really bear that one out. Mm-hmm. No comment there? Nope. <laughs> All right. And so not only did few people have pensions in the past, the pensions of today, in a lot of ways, are probably screwed. So there was also an, an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it goes through a number of pensions. And these are, they're looking at retired police and firemen. And this one was in some city in Rhode Island. And they're talking about how they're cutting their checks in half, more or less. So the pensions that people thought would be there really aren't going to be there because a lot of these municipalities are running into problems. And basically, they're so underfunded, they can't afford the benefits. Yeah. So I'm working on a long piece about all of these issues that are seemingly tied together. There is, this is probably the biggest worry of mine. And not to be hysterical, but what, like, what are these people going to do? I don't. In term, you mean the people, the beneficiaries, or the yeah, municipalities? No, yeah, no, yes, the the benefit people that have done what they were told to do, spent an entire career preparing, being told one thing, and now that thing that they were being promised is not there, and you have people going bankrupt left and right. There was an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday, I believe, showing that. Bankruptcies are up, have tripled since 1991 and people ages 65 and older, something like that. Um, so, do these people, I mean, what happens? Like, I don't, I mean, honestly, I agree. I think this is one of the more worrying trends we're seeing where I think there's just going to be a lot of angry old people. And I think a lot of this manifests itself politically where you're going to see this dichotomy between what politicians promise younger voters and what they promise older voters, because a lot of these older voters are going to think, you know, I'm getting screwed here. And obviously if they, if they cut the benefits in a lot of ways they are, but in the wall street journal article had the, this graph of the deficits and it's just gone slowly downhill each year from being slightly positive by the year 2000 to, I don't know, 1.5 trillion in the hole now or something. And if they can't make up these deficits, during 10 straight years of stock market gains, when are they ever going to do it? It's, I, I mean, it's just going to continue to get worse. To your point, so the deficit has compounded at a rate of 14% a year since 2008. 
In other words, the deficit has increased, gotten worse by 14% a year. Over that same time, the market has gained coincidentally 14% a year. So to your point, even in, in with, a, with a healthy backdrop of asset prices, these things can't get their act together. And in that New York Times article that we'll throw in the show notes, so like I said, the rate of people 65 and older filing for bankruptcy is three times what it was in 1991. I think that's what I said before. And the question as to what's going on here, a three in five people said unmanageable medical expenses played a role. And a little more than a third of the filers who answered the question said that helping others like children or other parents had contributed to their seeking bankruptcy protection. It's crazy. Yeah. This, they, they break out bankruptcy by each age group, 18 to 24, 25 to 34 on up. And the only one where it's increasing is 55 to 64 and 65 to 74. So older people, they say, have more student loans. They're more of them are heading to retirement with mortgages. I don't, I mean, I think it's just going to manifest itself through a lot of angry old people. And I don't know what that means, but I think it means kind of politically things are going to be very generational in the years ahead and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. So getting back to sign of the times, whether movie passes emblematic of, of today, Meb Faber shared a chart from the Luthold group, which shows the price to sales ratio of the S&P 500. And it also shows the median price to sales ratio of, of the median S&P 500 stock. And that is at an all-time high by quite a bit. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're... Can you do some technical analysis on this one for me? I think we're seeing some FIB retracement, something. You know what's funny to me? At our conference in California in June, Ken Fisher talked to Barry. And Fisher's not that old of a guy. What do you think? 60s maybe? 70s at the 70, most? yeah. He talked about how he was credited with creating the price to sales ratio. And isn't that kind of funny that the quote unquote price to sales ratio was only invented by a guy who's 70 ish? Like, how hard is it to take the price of something and divide it by the revenue? <laughs> like, I mean, and he said he used to pay a lot of money to get that data. Yeah. Like, that's how, that's kind of how far we've come that the price to sales ratio has been invented that not that long ago. I think one of the stories here is that companies have just become so much more efficient in terms of generating revenue. So Facebook is what, like $2 million in revenue per employee. And I, right. I saw a stat, I think this weekend, forget who shared it. Maybe it's from research affiliates. I'll try to dig it up. But it showed that stocks used to have a fairly high correlation in terms of returns to a company's like price to book value or price to tangible book. And that has completely since fallen off because companies are so much less uh, capital intensive than they used to be. And a right. lot of a lot of the assets are not necessarily held on the balance sheet. Yeah, makes sense that companies are continued. And you've written a lot about this too. And, and we think this is one of the reasons why it's really hard to compare valuations of today versus valuations in the 1880s or whenever Professor Schiller started the CAPE ratio. It's just a completely different market now. I also think that that explains how we've gotten here. I don't think that you and I are making the case that stocks are cheap by any means. I mean... There was, right. a, uh, I think, when Apple hit a trillion, it was bigger than the following S and P industry groups like materials, real estate, telecom, utilities, something like that. Yes, which are relatively small, but still, it's it's kind of mind boggling. Yeah. So there was kind of a cool thing that happened on financial Twitter last week. So Wisdom Tree debuted a new ETF, and they call it a balance fund. Just I think it's just called the Wisdom Tree ninety sixty U.S. Balance Fund. And the genesis of this ETF actually came from Twitter. So, and not just Twitter, but two 
pseudonymous, anonymous tweeters at Economic and at Non-Related Sense who are constantly arguing about funds and fund structures on uh, on Twitter. And they said a while ago, they, they put an idea that they wanted to see a 90-60 fund, which is more or less the equivalent of a 60-40 if you just put 66% of an allocation and they're using leverage. So more or less, this fund takes 90% of its money and puts it in something like the S&P 500 and 10% into treasury bonds and then borrows the rest to get to the other 60% in, in fixed income. Yeah, and- this is this was, this was very, very cool to see. Like Jake literally or Economic literally tweeted that in November 2017. So this is a very neat idea. What are what are like what are the risks of investing in something like this? Well, I mean, there's obviously leverage involved, and the idea here is that I guess you could call it like portable alpha is the term they use in institutional circles, where you you don't have to put as much money in to get a, the exposure of a sixty forty portfolio, and then you can try to go hunt for your alpha elsewhere. By the way, that sounds that sounds portable alpha. That sounds ridiculous. Yes, it does. But that's a term that sells with like consultants and allocators in the institutional world. So he Jake wrote a whole post about this, and we can link to that if you want to dig into it a little more. But the the big thing here is the fact that I think they tagged Jeremy Schwartz on this from Wisdom Tree and said, hey, look into this type of product we think would be cool. And Wisdom Tree did the work and decided to go ahead and do it, which is, which is pretty cool. Well, I would think... We haven't really seen innovation in the ETF space, right? We've just seen a lot of sort of True. different wrappers and... But this is this to me seems like a new category. This is this is pretty cool. And this, I mean, this one is it's pretty straightforward. There's leverage involved, which some people may not be comfortable with, but it's kind of like a risk parity approach where you can then take some other bets elsewhere, and you have your sixty forty kind of where it is. And I, so I think it's kind of an interesting thing for people that actually understand how this works. Okay, let's move on to some surveys of the week. This one was kind of flying around a little bit last week. We found this one CNBC and, and elsewhere, but the headline is. One in eight divorces is caused by student loans. And this was from a survey, of course. And I immediately sent this to you and said, no effing way, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's no way that people are getting divorced because of student loans. And it's kind of funny to me because I thought that millennials were like killing marriage and they were never getting married anymore. But now I'm learning that they are getting married, but student loans are causing them to break up. I just... There's no way this is true, right? No, I'm going to call baloney on this one. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but I'm going to call them no. All right. So sticking with divorce. No, just kidding. (laughs) Um, All right. So Dan Rasmussen wrote a really good post the other week talking about the lure of venture capital in which he says that in 1997, venture capital from Benchmark then managing about $85 million, invested $6.7 million in a small online auction company named eBay. And by the spring of 1999, that small stake was worth $5 billion. So if you invested just $6.7 million... Um, anyway, so Union Square Ventures' first fund, which was raised in 2004, returned 13.9 times cash-on-cash return off investments in startups like Twitter and Zynga. And obviously, this is how many of these funds position themselves, or at least position themselves to their investors, that they are lottery tickets for, for rich people. The crazy thing to me about learning about the venture world is the fact that in a lot of ways, it is, the historically at least, the best funds continue to have the best returns because it's very much a relationship type business where you need to get in front of these startup founders. And how do you do that? You can show them how you've worked with startup founders in the past. And so most of these, we talked about this last week about how a lot of 
hedge funds that are really successful don't want your money. Most of these large, well-established venture funds don't want your money, even if you're an institutional investor and you're not in their funds yet. So it's really hard to get into them. And the other interesting thing here is that Rasmussen pointed out, if you look at the past 3, 5, 10, and 15-year periods, the venture industry as a whole has underperformed the S&P, the Russell 2000, and the NASDAQ over all four of those timeframes. So even though a lot of people are worried about the fact that a lot of these companies aren't coming public anymore and maybe small investors are losing out, the venture industry as a whole hasn't done very well. And that's because most of the returns go to the best funds and the rest of them on aggregate don't do very well. Because if you don't hit those few home runs, you're screwed. We spoke about the Pareto effect in the public market, but it seems that it's even more pronounced in the, in the private markets. So one study conducted by a fund of funds investment manager revealed that from 1986 to 1999, a mere 29 funds raised 14% of the capital in, this, in the industry, but generated an astonishing 51% of total distributions. Yeah. And if you're not, so if you're not in these funds, you're out of luck because the, the spread between the best performers and the worst performers is enormously wide. And of course, everyone thinks that they're top quartile and wants to pretend that they're going to be, but very few are. And so if you're not with these best ones, you're pretty much out of luck. But if you can get into the top quartile, it, he showed a chart, that sh- uh, a table that shows that there is no better place to be than with the big winners in venture capital. Yes. And if you're an institutional allocator of capital, you think to yourself that you are only going to pick top quartile managers, which is, of course, impossible. And so that's where they all want to be, but it's very hard to get there. And then, so to, sticking with this point, David Haber replied to him and said that eight of the top 20 VC funds are in repeat names. So Sequoia, Benchmark, etc. And I remember in my institutional days, what you do to get a little piece of one of these funds is invest in a venture fund of funds, which is about as bad as it sounds because you're paying fees on top of fees and you'd get like a 5% allocation in that fund to one of these really good ones and hope that it, that it works in your favor. But that, that's even, that's just, that doesn't work either. So Lisa Abramowicz tweeted that yields on the lowest rated US junk bonds fell by the most since 2008 yesterday, falling to the lowest since 2014. And I'm not sure why, and I'm not pointing to her um, at all, but I'm not sure why people use credit spreads to either signal that we are in a recession or we are about to be in a recession. Well, in a way, it's a way to gauge risk sentiment in the market. And so when people are willing to accept lower yields for junky credit quality, euphoria. that assumes... Yeah. Well, that not just euphoria, but people are feeling pretty good about the state of business overall. Actually, maybe it's not euphoria. Maybe it's complacency. Yeah. That, that could be a better way to say it, it's complacency and the fact that... I mean, if you look at it, it's, it's so mind-boggling to me that it got to like 20% high yield spreads in the crisis. Like, I mean, that was pricing in... Almost little or almost anything beyond you know below Armageddon. So the fact that it got that high, it just shows that these things can blow out much further in either direction than most people assume. But it's, I mean, it's all relative in the fact of what are other things yielding as well. Right, but my so, my point was that people use these spreads to suggest that either spreads are too tight and people are sheep, or yes. spreads are wide and they're only about to blow out. Yeah. I agree. And if you look historically, the, a lot of these lower quality ones have outperformed in the past. So maybe maybe the spreads don't ever get as wide as they once were because people are better at pricing them now or people are better at realizing where the returns come from. So yeah, I think it's, it's hard to 
take a level and line and draw it as a line in the sand about what it does or doesn't mean. Another tweet that we saw was from David Shawell. This is really, really good. For all the talk about FANG valuations, here's an interesting stat via Poland Capital. Today, the percentage of US total market capitalization held by the five biggest economic profit generators is at a historically low percentage of the US market. So in other words, we've spoken at nauseam about this, so sorry to keep repeating it, but the top five stocks represent 16% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500. But according to this chart, the top five wealth creators' market cap percentage of total is only 10%. So this sort of makes sense that the biggest companies are generating the, I'm sorry, the lowest amount of profits, like a normal amount of profits, suggesting that it is not just the, the five names leading everything higher. Right. It's Yeah, it's not just five names and things are more spread out. How about you clean up what I just said? Because that was... That was nonsense. <laughs> well, we can look at the... Just looking at the chart, you can see back in the day, this thing was much more concentrated. I mean, it got up to almost 50% and now it's at 10. And so back in the day, things really probably were worries. And then no one... I'm, I'm guessing at the time, no one really even knew it. And it's actually been relatively stable for a number of decades now. So I think this is just another... Like People see that Apple is worth a trillion dollars and assume that the stock market is rigged and they're controlling everything. And it's just really not the case. Yeah. So did you see this post from Research Affiliates? Corey Hofstein linked to it last week. And they showed the asset quilt that we often see with asset classes, but they broke it down in, in terms of value strategies. So they used sales to price, book to price, cash flow to price, and, and things like this. And it shows what they all show, which is basically that from one year to the next, there is no rhyme or reason or, or way to predict which one is going to outperform. A quant investor stream here. Yes. I, I guess... Yeah, I got nothing on this one. Okay. Let's go to some recommendations. What do you got this week? All right. So Josh was absolutely right on Succession. It was really, really good. Definitely the show of the summer for me. Actually, the only show I watched this summer, but really, really good. And then I finished The Meat Racket, and that was that was worth reading, just in terms of what happened with... I know I spoke about this last week, but I won't repeat myself. Just it's It's worth reading. Very good book. Okay. I read The Crash of 1929, finally, by John Kenneth Galbraith. I'd never read that one before. I've, I don't know how many books I've read about the Great Depression, but I can't seem to get enough on that one. And the way that he explains it, he's kind of like, to me, I think he's about as good of a writer as the Adam Smith guy that you always talk about that wrote The Money Game. So he talks about this. He says, such is the genius of capitalism that where a real demand exists, it does not go long unfulfilled, which is, I, I think, really interesting, just the fact that it, how the psychology of these things works. And he was kind of explaining the, the run-up of the, the bull market in the 1920s that led to the crash. A couple other recommendations. My wife and I watched the movie Tully this week. It's what by is the, that? Charlize Theron was in it. And it was actually, it was about postpartum depression, which is kind of odd. It was by the creators of Juno. So it's a tad depressing. And if you don't have kids, you probably don't want to watch it. But it was, it was actually really well done. And it was kind of interesting. It was It was kind of yeah, I, it's hard to explain without giving it away, but it was, uh, I would say, you know, seven stars out of 10. It was pretty good. Uh, and my underrated show of the year I'm going to recommend here is called Casual on Hulu. It just had finished its fourth fourth season. Does, any, does anybody have Hulu except for you? I know. I mean, I'm always pushing Hulu and no one ever has it. You can, if you sign up, you can get a free month and, and binge this. But it was a four season show. It was kind of like Catastrophe on Amazon Prime that we talked about before. Each episode's like a half hour. It was only eight episodes a season. And it was 
one of the the lead character Alex is probably one of my most underrated favorite characters of the last couple of years in TV. So come on, I, I will. I really, it's a show I've never heard anyone talk about that I really liked, and the, they actually did like a flash forward in the last season where they they went ahead like four years, and they kind of did some interesting things with how technology and how things are going to be in four years, and so it was it was really well done. Um, kind of like a dramedy and uh, so I'm putting that one out there since no one ever talks about it alright send us an email animalspiritspod at gmail.com if you have any other good hot takes about how Vanguard is a Ponzi scheme we're always we're always up for those thanks for listening